So I have the uh, great opportunity this morning to do a one-off sermon. Um, it was some discussion was made about where we would get head in 2 Corinthians, and uh, this week turned out to be an unusually uh, full week as far as responsibilities that I had, uh, including, and I would appreciate, I know a number of you know this already, but my, my own father who uh, was hospitalized on Tuesday uh, this week with a congestive heart failure, and uh, we were able to go up on to, uh, Thursday to see him and take Ellie with us to uh, meet the grandparents for the first time, and my brother and my niece, and um, uh, they were. She was able to meet all of them, but my dad, uh, because they had a 16-year-old uh, limit on the hospital visit. So uh, my dad has not yet uh, met his granddaughter. So appreciate your prayers as we figure out what to, uh, how to care for him, and uh, where he goes from here. We're still waiting for some some more direction from the doctors. I think they're mostly monitoring him uh, right now, but your prayers will be appreciated. But all that to say, uh, I switched out then instead of finishing up my work week on Thursday, uh, worked on Friday and, okay, so Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to preach in a one-off uh, sermon as uh, Tyler prepares to come and finish up Nehemiah this week? And uh, the Lord led me to, uh, I think, a Thing we're pretty safe with at any time for any sermon, any part of the year, which is the issue of love. And when I began to think about the issue of love, the old Tina Turner song from the 80s popped into mind. What's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. What's love but a secondhand emotion? I went back and watched the video, read the lyrics. And uh, what does love have to do with it? Uh, or got to do with it? Well, what I'm going to be asserting this morning is that love is the preeminent Christian virtue, and it is the highest marker, if you will, of Christian progress, sanctification, and maturity. So as we think about the issue of love, according to this popular song, love is a secondhand emotion, which raises questions about, all right, is love actually an emotion? If so, what kind of emotion is it? Does the Bible define it that way as believers and followers of Jesus? We want him to set the pace and the Bible to set the pace for the definition and meaning of love and not let the world, because the world has a lot of ideas about what love is and isn't and how love wins or doesn't. And so we're coming back to the scriptures to answer that question. And what I'm going to assert is that love is not primarily an emotion. That love is something else. It includes the emotions, and where there is love, there is delight by very definition, but that love is actually the precondition for delight and enjoyment um, in the one who is loved. So I turn to my dictionary and uh, my online dictionary just immediately looks like, okay, what, is the com what are the common ways that the word love is used? And see if any of these fit the biblical description. First, an intense feeling of deep affection. I think that's what Tina was uh, singing about. And, and by that time, her heart had been broken enough that it was not a first-hand emotion. It was a second-hand emotion. But it's an intense feeling of deep affection. All right, that, it might be, that might be close. Let, let's see what the Bible has to say. Second, a great interest and pleasure in something. It depends on what you mean by interest. To say I have a vested interest in something is different than saying I am interested in this thing. 
slightly different nuance there. So is that is that close? Number three, a person or think that thing that one loves. So when I say my love to Kimberly, that's one of the ways this word is used. I'm pretty sure we're safe to say this one isn't the biblical one, which is a score of zero in tennis. Okay, so I think we can we can knock that one off. But where, if anywhere, in these definitions do we find biblical love? Are these accurate descriptions for what the Bible means? Is it a feeling of affection? Is it an interest and pleasure in something? And by interest, I think they mean pleasure. Those are synonyms in this case. Is it one that is loved? What does the scripture teach us about this? So buckle up. Um, we're going to get through a lot of passages this morning, the Lord willing. But I want to, first of all, look at just a theological basis of love itself. A theological basis for love, as many uh, theologians have pointed out, many Christians have pointed out, that, that God is definitionally love because God is definitionally and metaphysically, is the big word for it, Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. See, there's a problem with a monistic view of God, for instance, as the, Islam, uh, the, the Muslims hold, that he is solitary, by himself, infinite, that is Allah, is that eternally until he creates. That means God is alone and God is by definition not relationship and not love. He can express love, but what you have in Allah is a God that before creation has no expression of love because there's no person or thing to love other than himself. But in the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Spirit who are eternally loving one another in a perfect union for all eternity. We see Jesus himself dips into some of these ideas. If you'll look, please, in John chapter 17, known as the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the most extended expression of Jesus' own prayers of what his prayer life was like before the Father. In John chapter 17, after he prays for his own glory to be made known, for uh, them to be kept, for those who believe after him to be kept, he says some amazing things beginning with verse, well, the whole thing is amazing. But notice in chapter 17, beginning with verse 23, and I'm breaking in into a wonderful context here and dropping a lot of balls in the process. But verse 23, he's speaking of this love that he has for his disciples and that God has for them. And he says this, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's his prayer. He said, I want them to know and I want the world to know that you have, as you have loved me, you have loved my disciples. Now, obviously, qualitatively, we're talking about a pretty big distance between Christ and who he is and who we are as his disciples. But the love that he has for his disciples, for his children, is, he says here, the love that he has for the son, which we're going to come back to that later. But that's amazing. Verse 24, Father, I desire, here's Jesus's desire in his prayer, that they also whom you have given me may be with me and where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so what we have is Jesus pulling back the veil of creation and telling us something that was already existent before the world 
came to be. He pulls back that veil before the world began, before anything was created. There is the Son and the Father coexisting in a relationship of love. He's always loved the Father. The Father has always loved him. And that's why I say that the doctrine of the Trinity, as opposed to the, the doctrine of God in Islam, is a better and, and more metaphysically robust basis for community and love than what you have in Islam. So rather than a solitary God that just loves himself, you have a triune God that loves one another within the Trinity itself. So we have this love before the foundation of the world. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he's talking about two things in his followers, his love and he himself dwelling in them. So we have a love for the father, for the son, that he loves his children, his disciples with that same love. But not only that, the love that he gives to them, he puts in them and Christ's in them himself. So we, we are we are on we are in the deep end of the pool, folks, as far as Trinitarian theology and the love of God. But but essentially what comes down to this is, is just saturated and rolled in and deep fried and buttered in love. So the theological basis for love as a preeminent virtue has to do with this pre-foundation of the world love within the Trinity itself. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm going to assert from Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that the Spirit himself is also, though not mentioned in John 17 in this way, that the Spirit himself is the Spirit of love and the means of God's love poured out to us. Therefore, I can't imagine the Father and the Son and the Spirit not loving one another in that Trinitarian union. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we read of the hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, some theologians surmise, if you will, that the Spirit is something like, I mean, once you start saying God is like something, I mean, you, you, you're, you're bound to analogies and similes and metaphors, but you've got the love of the Father and the love of the, of the Son for one another, and there's this idea that the Spirit himself is like a, a generational person between the two persons of the Trinity. Something like that. That he is the means and the, the avenue and the venue and the, the eternally generated person, if you will, proceeding between the Father and the Son, so much so that he is the means by which he is poured out into his own people. Something like that. But in the very least, he is intertwined in the dance of this love that is taking place within the Trinity. So that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has, uh, who has been given to us. So to have the Holy Spirit is to have God's love in this relationship, inter-Trinitarian relationship. We are partaking of the inter-Trinitarian dance, if you will, is what some of the medievals called it. Uh, this dance with the Trinity itself. We get brought into inter-Trinitarian relationship and love. And then we have passages, uh, for instance, in 1 John, if you'll turn there, in 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16, again, just building this robust idea 
of God fundamentally being God of love. In 1 John 4, uh, 8, we read this. Anyone who does not love does not know God. To which we pause and go, well, why is that? I mean, can't somebody know God and not love him? And here's the reason. You can't know God, and remember knowing God in Scripture is more than informational uh, awareness. It is, it is to be in an intimate relationship with God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. And to know God is to know love. And this love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. We'll come back to that later. But he goes on to say, look, if you see a person that is not marked by love, they don't know God. Whatever this love is. So obviously we're getting into the second point. But the reason is that God is himself love. It's one of the few. I mean, we, we have God is holy. God is just. This is one of the few God is statements in the Bible. And he repeats it again down in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So again, we almost get this Trinitarian inner union dance with here. It's like to know God, to be in relationship with God is to be loved. And it is also to, to ignite or to spring out of us love because God has loved us. And so God is love, the theological basis. We're told in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he is the God of love and peace. He's a God of love and peace. We know from John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the primary motivation, at least in that passage, what, like why did God do anything in sending Christ as redeemer to die on the cross, to live a perfect life, to be raised from the dead, to come again in judgment and in glory? Why is that? And of course, the, you know, the proper answer, we, we, we might be tempted to say, it was, well, for his own glory, which is true. But, but I've come to think that maybe that word glory needs to be defined. Like, what does it mean to glorify God? It means to, to make much of or magnify something about him. Well, what is it to glorify God in his redemption? What, what exactly is being glorified? And what I'm going to suggest is redemption is a glorifying of God's love. In Christ. His primary motivation is glory to magnify, to glorify himself, but in what? And I would say the primary motivation, as we see in John 3:16, is love itself. So glorifying what about God? Glorifying his love. Okay, so that's a little bit of the theological backdrop for inter-Trinitarian love. The work of the, the person of the Holy Spirit, this love to know God is to know love and to be loved and have love abiding in us. God's primary motivation in glorifying himself in redemption is a glorifying, a magnifying of his love. It includes justice and wrath and equity and, and all of the rest. But the predominant feature of his redemption is love. Which brings us then to what I'm asserting is the preeminence of love in the New Testament as the defining Christian virtue. And not only the defining Christian virtue, but the defining virtue of the church. Which should go without saying, but I said it anyway. 
The preeminence of love in the New Testament. First of all, we notice over in the book of Galatians, and it, and it could be that this is just simply a listing of an array of the fruit of the Spirit, and that order has nothing in itself to show a hierarchy of preeminence, but nevertheless, it's mentioned here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, after going through the fruit of the flesh, which is uh, evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit, he says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is first listed love. So what we have is the third person of the Trinity who is himself love within the person uh, or within the, the triune God himself coming. And what is the evidence that the spirit has gotten into me and is taking me over and is leavening me is love. Now, it also includes the other fruit of the spirit, which are joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're going to get to some of that later. But the question may be asked, is love put first in order because of its first in importance? And I'm going to assert from the rest of what you'll see on the screen that it's first in order and importance. The fruit of the Spirit is love, which then breaks out into these subcategories of what does love look like? Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and so on. But the preeminent virtue here is love. And so where the Spirit dwells, love will be seen. Where love is not seen, the Spirit is not dwelling. Something, a simple syllogism like that. Well, it's not quite a syllogism, but a statement like that. We notice that love has this strange thing to it that Jesus says, because we know in the Old Testament, God is a God of love, and that the law is about love, and they were commanded to love their neighbor. But there's something about love in the New Testament that is so different that Jesus calls it a new commandment. In John 13, 34, which is supposed to get our, our, our attention, you know, a new commandment that you what? Love one another. Wait a minute. That's not new. That's been, that's been like around for a long time. Notice in John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. So remember that the first two commandments that he said, the greatest in the law was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like to it, love your neighbors yourself. Now he goes on to assert to say there's a new commandment. And they're all like, their ears are perked up and they're ready, a new commandment. This is something new. He's a new lawgiver. What is it to love one another? Uh, hey, does, does he realize like that was in the Old Testament too? But then he goes on to say, you also, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So there's something in what Christ has done is doing in the gospel stories. Like this is now going to be such a new way that I have loved you as God. That when I tell you to love as I have loved you, it's going to be so different and so shocking and so out of step seemingly with what happened in the Old Testament, that it's going to constitute a new commandment. Like there's a, there's a newness to this old commandment that's so such an alternative that it is a new commandment, something like that. So it's a new commandment that you love one another. 
And how important is this commandment? Well, he says there in verse 35, it is the mark of a disciple of Jesus. And I have no problem asserting that with the greatest confidence and affirmation because it's what Jesus says. In John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have the right theology. If you have the Bible, right Bible translation. If you're part of the right denominational stream or tribe. If you dress the right way. If you X, Y, there's all kinds of things. This, this is the mark of discipleship. But Jesus says it is the love. So whatever love is, and we haven't actually gotten down to what love is. We're just talking about its importance. Whatever this is, it's the newness of the new commandment. And it's that by which, and Francis Schaeffer, I read, first pointed this out to me. God, Jesus gives permission to the world to judge us whether we are followers of Jesus by what? Love. It's what Schaefer called the final apologetic. Like, if you want to know if someone knows God and is a disciple of Jesus, what's the one thing that is the litmus, the litmus test? And he says, it's love. To love as I have loved you. Then we see in John 14, 21. So with that context in mind, John 14, 21, he says this. Still in the upper room discourse. Whoever has my commandments, remember, oh, well, man, Jesus, you just told us there was just one. <laughs> it's just a love. Now you're back to commandments. It's because all of the commandments fit under the commandment to love. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And suddenly it's like, if you don't read that right, it suddenly sounds like work salvation. But it's not that at all. Together with what he's going to pray in John 17 with the rest of the gospel, what's going on here is the evidence of, of love and knowing God and being loved by God is going to be love. The thing we already saw in 1 John. Like, if you love me, it's not love me and now keep my commandments. It is love garners from you an obedience because of who God is, because of what he represents, because of what he's commanded. And, and I want to make a mention here, something that was been super helpful for me, or maybe helpful for some of you, and maybe you've already heard this before. But often we, sin, we think of sin merely in legal terms, because you know sin is an archery term, which means to fall short or to not hit the bullseye, something, something like that. And so there, there's this kind of Legal obligation, which which I'm not negating any of this, is just I don't think this is the primary way to think about it or hasn't been as helpful for me. But it's like this legal obligation. I'm always on the verge of breaking the law or keeping the law. The thing with with dealing with the law is is it it tends to be abstracted and impersonal and just legal. Whereas the gospel comes in and in having satisfied the legal issues brings us from legal to relational uh, engagement with God and with others. And so a big shift for me was to a way to think about sin is if I love you, I want you to flourish. I want I want you to be cared for. I want to do good to you. As a fallen human being, I don't have the wisdom sufficient to know what that looks like. 
But God has given his word, his law, to define for us the context in which human flourishing can most ideally happen. And so his law is a place of, if you will, boundaries for the purpose of a garden which will be cultivated and flourished. And so keeping the law, loving Christ, loving by not lying to you, by not killing you, by not being hateful to you, by not lying to you, by not committing adultery, by doing, by keeping the commandments, it is an outward expression of love to enable people around me to most ideally flourish in God's world. But if I lie, if I cheat, if I still steal, if I'm anger, angry, if I'm bitter, if I have animosity, if I don't forgive, all those things have a corrupting nature that those around me are, it's, it's like, you know, it's just a corrupting, noxious thing that happens and it chokes out the life in other people around me. So if I live that way in my home, disobeying the law of God chokes out the potential life in my family. If I live contrary to the law of God in a church, that chokes out the potential life and flourishing of the people around me. If I do that at my job, I'm choking out the potential flourishing of those around me. And so now we've moved from legal, I'm, I'm sinning in my home, I've broken the law in my home, I break the law of my job, then it becomes like, a jockeying for position. How can I get away and not break the law in a big time? But if it's motivated by love, it's like I'm doing this because I care for others and I want them to flourish and I want to flourish in the midst of that. And that has been just a helpful shift for me. It doesn't remove the legal, but it shifts it to love and relationships. And so now put, if you love me, Jesus says, if you love Jesus, who is the way, the truth, the life, he's the creator, he's the maker of the world, he's given his law for human flourishing. And now if I love him, what am I going to do? Well, if I'm going to love him, I'm going to keep his commandments because he knows how I should live in this world in a way that is most conducive to his glory, the magnifying of his love, and the doing of good to others. And that just has been a huge shift. So it's not me now keeping a list of like, what can I do? What can I not do? But now I'm asking the question, what can I do to love others and enable them to flourish? So that's what I think the relationship between then love and obedience is, is not a legal obligation primarily, but is this commitment to love what is good and true and beautiful in my life and the life of others around me. And then we come to the plethora not of piñatas, but of texts for loving one another. Hold on. Let's run through them real quick. Ready? Hold on. Get your Bibles. It's, it's, some of you had Bible drills growing up. Ready? Or just listen along with me. Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Galatians 5, verse 13. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Ephesians 4.2 With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12 says this, 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Chapter 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 4, 8. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keeping, uh, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3, 23. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Chapter uh, 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 11. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And finally, 2 John verse 5, and now I ask, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And so, I would assert that that is an array of texts, and that's not exhaustive, that the one another's of the New Testament and of our, our ethical virtue obligation to one another, first and foremost, is that of love, whatever it is. And I've not even gotten to what it is yet. But when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, I believe that he makes, Paul, that is, makes it more explicit. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to be there I believe the, the rest of our time, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, at the closing of his talking about love itself, in chapter 13, verse 13, we talk about faith and hope and love. And as good Protestant Reformed Christians, we would probably put up at the top of the hierarchy, like, what is the most important thing? Well, it's faith in Jesus Christ so we can be justified by faith alone and Christ alone and so on. And it's not that faith isn't important, but he compares faith, hope, and love, and says, what is the greatest? Well, he answers it. Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So it's not that faith isn't important and faith in Christ isn't important. It's not that hope isn't important and hope for the coming Christ of Christ isn't important. But he says, relative to faith and hope, this, this triad, which he uses in other books like First Thessalonians, is a kind of a triad summary of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Faith in what God is doing and will do, hope in the coming of what Christ will do at his coming. Love, and in this case, we're going to see it's not love for God. In this case, it's love for one another. It's a, it's a horizontal, not a vertical love that he's talking about. Well, the greatest of these is to love God. 
That, that is true. But in relation to our relation to one another, the greatest of these, he says, is love. Well, what about truth? Some of us will feel that because of uh, theological understanding or training or personal orientation or whatever it may be. It's like, well, Stephen, what, where's the truth in all this? Well, the truth is Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth. How? In love. As a matter of fact, I, I, I would assert that the greatest truth that we're seeing about who God is and Christian virtue, the greatest truth is love itself. So, no, we're not undermining truth. Jesus says, I'm the truth. Your word is truth. The entrance of your word brings light. But when that word enters in and Christ is seen and known and God is known and understood, what is the predominant virtue which is displayed and enacted in his people? It is love. As a matter of fact, we can say there's no real knowledge of truth if there's not the manifestation of love. Whatever it is, it's not truth known truly. Okay, so what about truth? Speak the truth in love. I heard for years, well, speaking the truth is love. Well, that's not what Paul says. There's a way to speak truth that's not in love. There's a way to speak truth in love. Well, what exactly does that mean, Stephen? I'm so glad you asked that question because that's actually the next point on my next slide. So what is love? Well, here we go to come to the classic passage read at most Christian weddings, which originally was not intended for a wedding. Well, in one sense it is. It's intended for the future prepara the preparation of a bride for a coming wedding. Love in 1 Corinthians 13. So here's where we're getting down to just the classic passage. And, and what I love about it is it's so simple. I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult and hard and feelingly impossible. But when it comes down to how do I know if I'm being filled with the Spirit? Well, do you have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness? I mean, it's just... It's just not that complicated. In the same way in love, what does love act like and what does love not like, act like? And Paul's like, well, be, be, uh, be in mystery no more, I will tell you. And we know what it is. We've read it many, many times. To flesh this out, then, when we speak particularly in here, I'm, I'm, I'm shifting a little. I'm not talking about God's, well, I'm not talking about God's inner Trinitarian love, because I'm going to come to that in a minute. That's a, that's a, I'm going to assert that's a different kind of love than with which he loved us initially, but we'll come back to that. But what is love? And I love this, that, that in almost any translation, we can read through this and immediately know we've got work to do. <laughs> and immediately go, yep, okay, uh-huh, okay, yep. But what we find in 1 Corinthians 13, the passage that Noah read, 1 Corinthians 13 is a composite picture. This is really what Paul's doing. And, and I think we tend to separate these things. Like if I have this and I don't have love, then it's nothing. And then put that attribute aside. And then he erects another attribute. And if I have this and don't have love, you know, and then I set that one aside. But what he's doing is he's building a composite picture. If I have this, and if I have this, and if I have this, and if, I, and if you put all the, if I have all of these things, and I don't have love, none of them are worth anything. So it's kind of an aggregate composite of a picture that he's drawing. And I actually think it's a picture of himself before he was a Christian. So here's the composite picture. 
A composite picture is imagine someone who speaks with tongues of men and angels. Now we could debate what that means. Is that glossolalia? Is that another language? Does it mean human eloquence? Whatever it is, it's something mysterious and majestic and wonderful that Paul talks about. But whatever it is, it's like someone who's got that in that church in Corinth, like that was the person who really had the Holy Spirit, whatever it was. Okay, so it was it was the marker of the charismatic gift that most identified the most spiritual people among them. That's how they were thinking about it. So he includes that. So speaking with tongues of men and angels, it may just mean incredible eloquence or something like that. Prophetic powers, which also may include just preaching eloquence, the ability to communicate powerfully the truth of God's word. And it's one to be able to speak and to communicate in such a way that people are moved and there's power behind it. He said, I could have tongues of men and angels, prophetic power, someone who has in, in, in this gray space up in the top of their noggin and in their soul, the ability to understand mysteries and knowledge and they read the word and they have insight and they have interpretive capacities and they have all of these abilities and either God given directly or through school and training, they have an understanding of all mysteries and knowledge then this person is like unshakably confident in their faith. Like, I know God is for me and I know what God has done. One who is out of that gives away everything they have for the cause of good. Like, I, I, I am voluntarily impoverishing myself to care for the widow, to care for the orphan, to care for those who are needy, to, get, to bring justice to the oppressed and, and giving away everything. And then one who is even willing to sacrifice their own life for the truth, to deliver up their body, to be burned, one of the most painful ways to die. And here's this composite picture of a person who's eloquent, understands the truth, prophetic powers and communication, absolute confidence that they are on God's side and God is on their side and God is for them, who's willing to give away everything they have for the good, the cause of good, and even allow themselves to be burned. And Paul says you can have all of that and be absent of love. And so you put a Christian face on that. You have a person who is potentially incredibly dedicated to the cause, who has preaching powers or communicating powers, who is eloquent and understands and has faith and has counted the cost and given away all of the extravagance in their life and is willing, you know, to take a bullet in the head in the Far East to go as a missionary. And Paul paints a picture. There's something that can motivate a person to do all of that. That's something other than love. To which we would say, well, surely all of that merits something, does it? Doesn't it? I mean, if somebody's that committed to the cause, even if they're not like a love, whatever in, in love, he's going to define. <laughs> he's, he's actually going to define it. Surely that merits something. No, he says all of that without love is empty, useless, vain, vacuous, nothing. Nothing. Now with love, 
Man, th- those, those are sails that will sail ships of gospel effort and love and compassion across the globe. But without love, there's no sails. That ship doesn't fly. As a matter of fact, that ship has a hole in it without love that will, will ultimately sink it into destruction. And I think this is, the, this is, this is Paul before his conversion. Incredibly gifted, knowledgeable, sacrificial, zealous for the truth. Understanding mysteries and knowledge in a way that the other Jews did not of his time. But he lacked love. He lacked Christ. And for that reason, did not know God. So what is it? What is love? And we'd almost expect him to come up with this like really profound idea of what love is but in contrast to this there's this he's like no here's here's what love is it's patient <laughs> you can have all that and be impatient with people it, it, the, the older version is long suffering which jonathan edwards by the way who wrote uh, an entire series of sermons collected in a book called charity and its virtue which i would highly recommend uh it was one of the first sermon series I preached at RBC many years ago. But Jonathan Edwards write, writes that long-suffering indicates somebody is causing something in me, me to suffer in some way, and my response is that of suffering under it. Now, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about a lot of other things, but I don't want to be misunderstood. But you get the idea. It's like somebody is doing me wrong, and I am patient with them, whether it's my children, my spouse, my friend, my church member, my pastor, my, my neighbor, whoever it is. Love, it's like, well, I'm not a very patient person, but man, I know the Bible and I have studied theology and I have given money to the poor and I've done all these things and I can speak powerfully and I've preached in downtown Nashville without love, he says, which is just patient as nothing. Isn't that hard, but yet so simple? He says it's without envy. Love is not, love is patient. Love is kind. What is kindness? I can't define it very well, but you sure do notice it when you see it, don't you? You, you, you walk through and you see how somebody is talking. I, I was... I was at a certain place recently. I don't want to give too much away of that. Um, I was at a certain place recently, and there was some clientele, and there's someone who was serving this clientele. And the way that he was, I mean, he was making a point of what needed to happen, but it was in such a way that was just unkind. And all I could think was, that's just unkind. I mean, define it. Well, where there's this, and yeah, you can slither out of it, but you know it when you see it, and you know it when it's missing. It's just kindness. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it says here, or boast. There's a lot of motivational stuff behind that, but like, I want what you want, or I want what you have, and I boast about what I have. I'm arrogant. He goes on to say things about being arrogant and rude, 
It's the, the Greek word aschema, which means to be out of the scheme and pattern of things. It's just to stick out like a sore thumb unnecessarily. Now, some people are just rude in a social context because they don't know any better. Other people are like, I'm going to be the rude person. Like, I'm going to be the one that sticks out. I'm go-, and he's like, love just doesn't do that. It does not insist on its own way, which always disguises itself as God's way, by the way. We would say, well, I don't insist on my way. I'm just insisting on God's way. Yes, well, that's a nice way to dress it up usually to just say, I'm insisting on my own way. Not always, but often it's just dressed up in that way. But just this is the way it must be because this, this, this is the godly way to do it. This is the biblical way to do it. This is the right way to do it. This is the, it just insists on its own way. This is how it's going to be done because it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. If I can't find it in the Bible. It's insisting on one's own way. This is just how it's going to be done. And I'm not compromising on it. Which creates, not surprisingly, love is not irritable. Irritable, the the Greek word I was looking at this morning, just means sharp. It's a a sharp responsiveness. It just pokes a little holes in people's souls. You know, it's not a dagger by which you plunge it into their chest and rip their chest cavity open and spread apart their, their, their chest they're, they're um, or the single ribs. It's not that. It's just these little pinpricks. You know, you can just die by a thousand little pinpricks over and over and over. It's like, well, it's, it doesn't feel fatal, but man, it sure doesn't feel good. And that's just irritability. He goes on to say, it's not irritable or resentful. This is literally to keep account of evil, keep account of wrongs. Now, I'm not talking about when somebody says to someone, well, you've, you've just kind of been rude in this area. Well, give me an example. Well, I can give you an example. Aha, you're holding wrong. No, it's someone who's storing up, like I heard this years ago, was such when somebody has an offense or something you don't like, it's like taking their offense like a dirty diaper. We get a few of these in our house recently. It's like taking that dirty diaper. What do you do with the dirty diaper? Aren't you supposed to wrap it up, throw it in the outside garbage, right? But to keep account of evil is to take that and say, oh, yeah, this person sinned against me. They did something wrong. And then you go to your memory closet and you open it up and you put that diaper in there and you write their name on it and then you close it. And you don't sniff it and think about it all the time. But the next time they sin against you, you go to that closet and you look for all the diapers with their names and you pull them out in the middle of the floor and you start... This person has wronged me. Oh, yeah, that, that's keeping account of evil. Not, I happen to remember an occasion where you did this against me. You asked for an example. I'm telling you, well, you're bringing it up against me. I'm, I'm really not. I, I don't have your diaper hanging out of my closet. You asked for an example. I'm giving you an example. But th- this is keeping account of evil. Does not rejoice, is not resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. In other words, love doesn't look at the catastrophes that happen on other people and gives a little satisfaction like, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm so sorry about that. Yeah. Had it coming, didn't they? It's, it's a kind of rejoicing when calamity falls them. Instead of when something good happens to them, it's like, that's what I wanted for them. Even though... I've been hurt. 
rejoicing not in wrong, but the truth. It says it, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. It's basically commitment, like I'm going to do this until you or me are dead. And then after you die, I'm going to still keep loving you by not harboring the bitterness and being resentful, etc. So Paul says that, if you don't have that, then all the things in the previous paragraph are worthless. And that's why not sacrifice, knowledge of the truth, giving up of ourselves, faith, or any of that is the preeminent virtue. That's why the preeminent virtue is love. And in one sense, again, I say I, I hear these things and I'm incredibly convicted over them. But at the same time, I'm thankful that they're such relatively simple things to identify and by the Spirit and the help of God to work on. So, this kind of love, by this, all men will know you are my disciples when you have love for one another, 1 Corinthians 13. The fruit of the Spirit is love, 1 Corinthians 13. This kind of love is the premier display of spiritual maturity over all the previous markers. Benevolence, giving, ability to communicate the truth, know the truth, understand the truth, all of the things... None of those are sure markers of Christian maturity apart from love. So, what do we need for such love? Well, if you hear me say now, now, all right, let's close our Bibles now. You need to go love other people. Just like, <laughs> thought I was trying. Really, I thought I was. I was really trying to do that. Realize now I've got some areas that, that yeah, I, I could be a lot more like Jesus, a lot more like the Holy Spirit. I, I realize now there's, okay, yes, yeah, so it's just a reminder for some of these things. So I could, I could crush you and go, therefore, go love. But the Bible has a specific idea of where we get the, because, you know, let's take the old Lutheran path that says basically this, the law, even the law of love, is first and foremost to show us our need for Christ. Like all of the ways that we just saw. What is Christ's love for you? Jesus is patient with you. And he's kind to you. He doesn't envy or boast. And he's not irritable towards you. He doesn't keep your, keep your dirty diapers in his sin closet. He's not resentful and he's not boastful. And he understands all mysteries because what 1 Corinthians 13 is ultimately a picture of Christ himself because he gave himself as a sacrifice. Not to be burned, but even worse and more painful to be hung on a cross. He understands mysteries, speaks the tongue with the, the tongues of men and angels. He, he is all of that, but he is that infused and grounded in love. So he does not insist on his own way. Is not irritable and resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices in the truth. He bears us in all things. He believes in all things. He hopes in all things. And endures. And Jesus for you never fails. So that's the first step of 
what do I do? Uh, well, that's how, that's how Christ has loved me. Because if you didn't notice, Christ doesn't love us because we're lovely. Christ doesn't love us because we're perfect. Christ doesn't love us because we have measured up. Christ, Jesus has not loved us because we've obeyed the law. And that's where there's a difference between the way God is loved within the Trinity and how he loves us and how we love others. So this is what I want to leave you with is Ephesians. What do we need, if you will, to be empowered with the power that we need to love others and to grow in love? Well, Paul, I think, summarizes it well in this prayer. First, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that's what I'm talking about. Because you, if you go like, OK, now I'm going to go love. I'm going to try hard. You know, you, you and I don't have what it takes. We just don't. But Paul's prayer here is that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice what he says. That you being rooted and grounded in love because faith comes out of this received love that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ I'm adding, inserting here for you, that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is to be aware and knowledgeable of God's depth and breadth and length of love for us in Christ, that which surpasses understanding, that then empowers us to have faith and to love and to be transformed. It's something like that. So that in that we are filled with all the fullness of God. The way we're filled with the fullness of God is to be filled with his love for us. Now here let me make a quick theological distinction. When I talk about inter-Trinitarian love, many of you have heard me talk on this before. God loves within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, love out of complacency. And we think of complacency, complacency being like bored and satisfied with what's going on but that's not the original meaning of the word complacency means a satisfaction in something and so in the inner trinitarian uh, union of love like they look at one another as persons and they delight in one another because of perfections of holiness and love and justice and goodness and truth and wisdom like there's everything lovely within the trinity go check jonathan edwards or john piper and you'll get a lot of that which is good. But there's that inner Trinitarian love. And so now he creates us. We sin against him. And now he turns, if you will, by way of analogy, turns and says, okay, how are we going to love these people? And suddenly it's like, oh no. <laughs> if we're going to love these people, it can't be the same love that we have for one another. Because they're not very satisfying. They're like really sinful. And they... Fill the world with violence and hatred and love and, 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 and self-indulgence and gluttony and, and, and all of these. So when God turns his love toward us, there has to be for the first time in 
God's history, if you will, that there's a love that's poured out that's different than the inter-Trinitarian love. And it's not the love of complacency. He doesn't look at us initially and say, I'm satisfied, and for that reason, you're delightful, and you're beautiful, and you're lovely, and you're holy, and you're good, and you're full of love, and I therefore am satisfied with you. He does that in himself, but he doesn't do that with us. He first turns to us in a love of benevolence, and that's the John 3, 16, for God so loved in benevolence and pity and mercy fallen sinners, rebellious sinners like us, that he has, if you will, for the first time in his history, and I'm using these terms very loosely for an eternal God, to engage a love and to pour out a love that's different than the inter-Trinitarian love. And it's a love that has been titled a love of benevolence. And a love of benevolence is that which is evoked from the need in the thing or the person that is the love has been set on. And it's a commitment to do good even to the point of sacrifice, which is the gospel. That God himself looks and sends his son and so pities us. I, I, I heard this foolish statement many, many, many years ago of a pastor who said that, that God so loves us that we are God's God. No, that's just not how this thing works. There's, a, there's no God doesn't look at us and is so enamored with us and so loves us initially that he just, oh, I bow to you and I serve you and you are, that's just not how this works. He looks and he says, you are so wrecked and you are so ruined and you are so rebellious. That's a nice three. You're all of that. And I'm going, you're evoking from me pity and mercy that I'm going to pour out and I'm going to come in the person of Jesus Christ and die for you on the cross to give you meaning and purpose and, and, and reconciliation with me and all of that. And then here's the mystery, here's the thing that blows me away. When once redeemed, he puts us in union with Christ. And now you know how he loves us? He loves us with a love of complacency that the love with which you've loved me, love of complacency, you may love them. And God's love of complacency is a complacency of love because of who we are in Christ and who we will be made to be when he returns. He will one day look at you and you will one day look at him and there will be no shame. There will be no embarrassment. There will be no guilt there will be no consciousness of sin and you will stare into the beautiful face of God naked and unashamed. And so it's as we are filled with that knowledge of his love of benevolence, which has turned into a love of complacency because of us being in Christ and what we will become now he says, this is the new commandment, that as I have loved you, you love one another. And by this love will all men know you are my disciples when you have love for one another. So it looks something like this. Here's us, pitiful, pitiful little shriveled up hearts. Try to love, we just can't squeeze it out. 
that we have here is just a symbol for the Trinity. It's what that's intended to mean. So you have inner Trinitarian love that in the gospel is poured out to us, funneled into our hearts that fill our hearts. And that's the reservoir of our capacity for loving others. And then that moves upward in gratitude. And we love God, not with benevolence, but with complacency because he is beautiful. He is glorious and he is a God of love. And we love him with a love of complacency. And as we do that, then we are moving outward into a love for one another. So love is a Christian virtue, yes, but it's a virtue that can only be empowered by the love of Christ in us by his Holy Spirit. And so in conclusion, God's love for us makes room in our hearts to generate a love toward other people who are sinful, broken, unlovable, disappointing, and even treacherous toward us. Because we're like that, just maybe not with them, but with somebody else. But it makes room. God's love in this way makes room to generate this love and forgiveness and mercy toward people, even when they are still unrepentant at times. That could not otherwise happen. At least give us a disposition and longing for forgiveness. Our hearts are like hoppers to be filled, not primarily by other people's love for us. And here, here's where we, we, we misstep. It's like, you know what? There, there are people that I, I love to love. Like there are people I just really like and enjoy being around. And I love their conversation. I love the things that they love. And we enjoy the same music and we read poetry together. and We do all this stuff. And they're the easiest people, and I love them with a love of complacency. And that's okay. Like I, love, like, I like ice cream after lunch, just a dab of crunchy peanut butter with a little bit of chocolate, just enough to sat at me. Like, I, I, I have a love of complacency for that little bowl of ice cream. It brings me joy. It's, it couldn't be any better. And there are people like that. But where the love of the gospel isn't people that are like me or the people that agree with me or people that have not betrayed me or people who don't disappoint me or people who are hard to love. The love of the gospel, the love of benevolence is shown not by what other people give me, but what God gives me to help me to overcome and love those who I just don't find that easy to love. When we lack what we need to love others, it is only our personally meditating on and celebrating God's gospel love for us that can empower us to love by the Holy Spirit. So my conclusion then is it does us well. It serves us well, you and me and you and you and you and you, to spend much time in scripture and in songs and in thought glorying in God's love for us. There's no way to get up from this sermon, go out and in of our own strength, just love one another better. It's just not, not with true love. But to spend time in glorying in God's love, not merely for self-comfort. You see, that's not the point is I want to know God's love so I feel better about myself. There's, there's an element to that of not self-loathing and, and so on. But the motivation here is that I'll have in my heart that which I need to display that love to others. And in doing so, I actually will gain confidence in who God is because I'll see his work in me. And it enables us to fulfill the commandment to love God and to love others. Amen. Well, let's, let's please pray. So Lord, you have spoken clearly and clearly, um, concisely in your word, though I've not been as concise um, 
Lord, about what love is and what's love got to do with it. And at the end of the day, we have to say it has everything to do with it. It has the reason we have any relationship with you. It is the reason we can sing and rejoice and find our identity. And it is the very reason that we can love others. So help us as we go to our homes, as we, Lord, think about this word, as we think about these texts, as we apply the word to our hearts, Lord, fill us with the spirit himself to uh, lift us up beyond our own capacities to pursue that virtue empowered by the height and the length and the breadth and the depth of your love, which surpasses knowledge. Lord, that is an ocean for us to constantly drink from that we will never exhaust. Uh, help us not fail to go 